contact is a spontaneous creative process. Um, when the excitant and um, percipient come together, it's a spontaneous creative process. Um, it's not made to happen. You don't do it. You don't force it. It just no. no it, you don't make. Uh, I've I've uh, challenged people. People talk about making contact. I don't believe you make contact. It occurs spontaneously under the right conditions when that the excitation can be accurately perceived. Um, yeah, I don't think you can make contact any more than you can make love. Love is a spontaneous, natural process. It happens or it doesn't. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Nietzsche, Nietzsche knew that. I, I'll paraphrase him, but Nietzsche said, um, love is a spontaneous emotion. You can't promise to love someone forever. You can promise to act as if you do. <laughs> Other romantics are not going to want to hear Nietzsche. No. <laughs> Welcome to In Contact with the ACO. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. I'm happy to say it's been one year of podcasting. Thank you to all who have made suggestions, provided encouragement, and participated in helping to put it together. If you're interested in attending one of our live events or webinar presentations, you can meet the doctors and join in on the discussion afterwards. You can connect with us and learn more at a different kind of psychiatry.com or ergonomy.org. Stay tuned for details about our online events and for more for when we'll resume in person at the ACO campus near Princeton, New Jersey. This episode features an interview with Peter Christ, MD. I sit down with him to learn more about social ergonomy. What is it and how does it apply to doctors working with patients in therapy as well as to others in their work and love lives? You'll hear references to an event that sadly did not occur secondary to the pandemic, but we'll do what we can to get this knowledge out when possible in one form or another. The ACO is hosting a social ergonomy event and the focus is on work. Um, this sounds very different than the psychiatric case presentations, but from what I've heard you say before, there's a lot of similarities. So maybe you could just say what is social ergonomy and um, help the listener understand uh, what that means. Okay. So if, if we just start with um, the simple definition of ergonomy is the science of man's relationship with nature. So social ergonomy is how that science applies to the interactions between people, both the healthy and the pathological aspects and how that um, plays out in families and organizations and politically, uh, in term, even political entities. Hmm. So is social ergonomy broader than medical ergonomy? So uh, it, that's a question that's very, um, uh, not, it's not simple to answer that question. And the reason is that um, ergonomy started in the medical field, its roots in psychoanalysis and helping people with their individual problems. And 
early on um, when Reich was developing his approach with character analysis, uh, he began to ask the question, so why do people end up neurotic? And it quickly goes back to the family. And so if you start looking at the family, you're in the realm of social interactions. So um, the social realm is really broader than the individual psychological realm. But uh, where ergonomy has ended up is looking at the biological basis of all of that, which is an even deeper, um, broader realm. So um, I, one of the ways I think about it is um, ergonomy has largely been centered on medical ergonomy and the case presentation series have been illustrating uh, the medical treatment of individual emotional problems. Um, but social ergonomy um, is where we take many of those principles and then start looking more broadly about what happens beyond the individual in terms of their relationships, in terms of their interactions with other people. And um, obviously, if you're working with an individual, they're going. Everybody has relationships, from love relationships to work relationships. So uh, we have to take that into account. But if I were to separate it out, uh, medical ergonomy is the discipline that focuses on helping people make better contact with themselves to really be in touch with their emotions, their sensations. Social ergonomy is really the, the discipline of looking at how people make contact with each other and helping them make better contact uh, in their interactions with other people. Could, could I ask you to explain a little bit more? So um, you used the word contact, and the name of the podcast is In Contact with the ACO. Right. Um, for listeners who have heard that term but maybe aren't as familiar, how would you describe that word a little bit more? Okay. Um, it, contact, literally, the literal definition from its origin is con means with, tact means to touch. So we're, but we use that term in ergonomy in a much broader meaning that uh, in contact, when we're talking about it, means uh, always has two components, perception and excitation. And to not get too lost in the, in the theory of it, when we make contact with our own emotions, we are accurately perceiving um, the excitation of, of the, that emotional reaction in our body. And so when we're talking about, so when you talk about contact with, with yourself, it's are you accurately perceiving the energy that moves in an emotional way or are you accurately perceiving the energy that moves in a sensory way? So you can have sensory contact, you can have emotional contact. And those two principles of uh, excitation and perception apply in the social realm in a way that has been absolutely useful and helpful in all of my work with uh, couples and family relationships and business relationships. At any particular moment in time, one person embodies the excitation, is the excitant. The other person, to, uh, for contact to occur, has to be perceiving that other person's excitation. And um, in common parlance, you know, if, if one person's talking a lot, the other person's not listening, there is not uh, communication, there's not contact. 
So looking at where that interaction between people gets um, interrupted and, and blocked is a lot of the work that I do in the social realm. Uh, it's, it's absolutely fundamental. So if two people are excited and no one's perceiving the other one, it prevents the spontaneous contact from occurring. So um, in one of the business interactions that, that uh, I've addressed, uh, one person was, uh, as the salesperson, was constantly trying to get the other person to buy. Um, to make a sale. To, to make to, a sale. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's the, the whole thing that so often happens is people think, well, I got to make this happen. Um, and it, my advice to them was you've got to just listen to the pr potential buyer. And, it, and it's any good sales training knows these things instinctively. Um, but um, we are able to apply some specific um, uh, functional uh, theory and knowledge that it's absolutely clear that you could stop talking but still not be perceiving and the connection wouldn't happen. So it's not a mechanical thing of how much uh, excitation, how much perception. It's whether those two uh, people actually get together. I see. And so you work with businesses and individuals with their work lives and then you're involved in the social ergonomy training program. Um, so maybe just stepping back a little bit so um social ergonomy you mentioned using that in your medical practice but you don't have to be a doctor to use social ergonomy is that is that accurate that's accurate yes yeah so the the people in our training program none of them are uh in the social ergonomy training program at the college of ergonomy none of them are doctors they range from an attorney to uh, people in business to uh, educational counselors, um, and uh, so these principles that, that apply out in the work world um, uh, can be used and, and applied by people who are, are not physicians, obviously. And what we're finding is more of the, the medical ergonomists are realizing um, greater knowledge about how these interactions happen between, between people are extremely useful. and in developing their um, uh, interactions between doctor and patient. That's a social interaction uh, with a specific function of healing the patient. Yeah. So I'm interested just to learn a little bit more about um, the trainees involved in the social ergonomy uh, program, um, how they're using this knowledge um, in their business life or in the social realm. Uh, do you have any examples? Yeah. Um, so um, one of the other basic principles uh, in, in social ergonomy to me is that every relationship has a uh, particular primary function. So uh, Wilhelm Reich said, love, work, and knowledge are the wellsprings of our life. They should also uh, govern it. So those two things of love and work are the basic uh, categories of all of our relationships. So if um, uh, someone is is working um, uh, with someone else, it's very important to be clear about is your function uh, one of, of 
producing whatever this work relation is supposed to be about, or are you just there to have fun? Uh, <laughs> and so everybody says, well, um, you know, you want to have fun while you're working. And, and that's why I come back to um, every relationship has both work and love functions. And when I give presentations on this, I love asking the audience, um, anybody in a, in a marriage and people say yes. And I'll say, um, is that a love relationship or a work relationship? <laughs> I'll get sort of a confused look. I said, well, the primary function is love. But uh, then I asked him, does anybody find it takes work to maintain a marriage? And like a moment of confusion, everybody pretty much raises their hand and says yes. So um, that aspect of, of being clear about the function of, of the relationship is, is very important. And so in um, the, the company that I consult with recently, um, the fellow who had taken on uh, revitalizing and reorganizing the sales team um, told me that after their annual sales planning meeting, um, someone who was there as a consultant helping them uh, uh, with their sales training uh, said, uh, your uh, salespeople love their clients. And, and, I, and he said to me, you know, I thought back and before the sales team had turned around and, and wasn't functioning well, uh, you never had that feeling that the salespeople love their clients. So that's a perfect example that if the sales team loves their clients, they're far more likely to have that client want to get together with them, want to make contact, want to uh, buy something from them. And once uh, that shift in the whole um, quality of the sales force changed, the, the love aspect of that work relationship came to the fore and absolutely supported it. So in a good work relationship, the love will support the work. In a good love relationship, um, the lo work will support the love. Yeah, that sounds, you know, like in direct contrast with the way, you know, some people stereotypically think of salespeople, like looking for the mark to make the sale. Um, uh, so it sounds like when they're able to see uh, their clients as someone they had a relationship in, with and wanted to help, um, that helped change the way they looked at things. And um, exactly, wow. exactly. And and um, this fellow made the point that uh, someone who had come back from having been on leave was the only one left on the sales force that that looked at her clients as her possessions. They're my clients. Uh, I don't want a, someone else to work with them rather than these are people I have a relationship with. Yeah. Uh, and um, so that's with um, one business. And you mentioned that there's uh, trainees who are, who are using the, the information and, and, uh, and their work lives too. Um, yes. What have yep. you seen them do? So... Um, <clears throat> One of the, the um, uh, people who will be presenting at, at our um, uh, April 4th event, um, is, she owns property and is a landlord. And once she got absolutely clear about her role as a landlord, 
that that was her function, she was able to let go of some of the other confusing things of wanting to be more friendly with the tenants. And it wasn't that she was no longer friendly, but she had, in a sense, lost sight of, of that the, her function was simply uh, to be their landlord and the other things were, were secondary. So she was able to look at that whole question of what is the primary function uh, of the relationship. I won't give away the specific details because it's it's a wonderful example that uh, I, I, I hope people will uh, be able to come and, and, and hear that, that example. Um, another um, basic um, a principle uh, along the same lines, one of the people uh, presenting uh, owns um, rehabilitation facilities. They're actually long-term residential care facilities for people with uh, disabilities and various um, medical conditions. And he instinctively has that sense of um, looking at each person as, as an individual human being. And um, because he worked with uh, just um, seeing people, the, a minor example that just set, tells so much about uh, how he worked is that he realized not everybody wants to get up at seven in the morning for breakfast. So he had <laughs> He had an absolutely individual uh, meal plan with people that they would get their meals when when it was best for them to get their meals. And the level of satisfaction, the, le uh, the decrease in complaints uh, was dramatic wow. uh, with, with that. Yeah. Wow. Now, uh, uh, and this is all reminding me, another key um, concept in, in ergonomy that comes from uh, medical ergonomy is the understanding that we all have three layers of our emotional structure, a core, a secondary layer, and a facade, what I call the nature, the character, and the personality. And in um, organizations, I, I am absolutely clear the same thing is true, that every organization has a core function that develops spontaneously to, to provide some need in society. It's what typically gets called the mission, but mission has such an intellectual sort of moralistic term that I really like uh, our term core function, uh, that what is the natural process going on in, in the organization. And then it develops a, a character um, that traditionally is called the, the corporate culture, and then it has an image over top of that. So this fellow, Dan Gregory, who owns the the um, residential care facilities. In my uh, tutoring with him, what I kept focusing on is what is the core function of your uh, your businesses? Um, and what became very clear is is the specific thing that makes his business in some ways unique from others is he has always seen that he is there to try to help people live their lives more fully despite their medical problems and despite their uh, uh, disabilities. And so as we talked about it, I said, so every time you focus with your staff on what is the core function of this organization, um, it, it, it will help them uh, really be connected with what th this is all about. And he said, wow, that's even going to change how I hire people. He said, 
nobody likes emptying bedpans. I mean that, but th if they can see that that serves uh, a greater function of helping people live their lives more fully, they can manage to do that without so many um, worker complaints of God, I hate this job and, and yeah. that whole thing, which dovetails with um, that same three layers is when I'm working with individuals, I'm always looking at what is that person's specific work nature. So some people by nature are very sensitive. Some people by nature are very uh, outgoing. Some people by nature are, are uh, very talkative. What And each of those qualities um, can play out in, in how they do their work. And so I believe work satisfaction comes from people being able to discharge that natural impulse that comes from their work nature. And the extent to which somebody can do that um, will give them satisfaction, whether it's in um, uh, a job or, or uh, some, the specific job description, if, if there is an outlet for our particular way of doing things. So with Dan, uh, it, it was clear he loves helping people. Um, and so once his uh, business was doing um, better, I think he attributes some of it as um, just his natural abilities, but also just being able to focus it more clearly with what he learned in our training program. Mm -hmm. uh, he then uh, had some, he, was, he sold one of his businesses and then he was saying, all right, now I have some money. How can I help people? That was his impulse. Yeah. <laughs> be someone else's but that was his impulse so he will now potentially find satisfaction having an outlet for his desire to help people in some field entirely different from running an extended care residential facility wow. do you have any um general ideas about um the modern kind of workplace and it, it seems people have been more dissatisfied with their work lives maybe than ever before i, I don't know if that's true I, I'm, I'm younger but um um it sounds like that's part of what this program and you and the trainees are trying to do is help people be more satisfied but um i don't know if it's the way the media portrays it but it, it seems like people are, are dissatisfied with their work a lot of times are there any things that stand out just from your work or from your general knowledge um yes and i i, I you know my um uh, experience is obviously um not a general survey of how things are but I, overall i get a sense that um, there is um, a problem with satisfaction primarily because of um, the tendency for work organizations to be mechanical and not have genuine connections happen. And so when I use the term contact, that's, I'm talking about genuine connections where there is that connection people have with their work, with um, uh, uh, something productive and I, I can't remember the exact details but I, I ran across a number of years ago I was looking up um, 
the characteristics of millennials in terms of their work life. And one of the things that people, the older generation kept complaining, well, they, they, they just want to do what they want to do. They, they won't follow <laughs> orders. And, and this person had the, the, um, um, whatever you want to call it, the insight to, um, say, well, that's actually a positive thing, is that the millennials are not interested in just approaching work as a mechanical thing. They want to understand, do they, do I have a purpose here? What is my connection? And so the extent to which jobs become disconnected from feeling like uh, you've made a difference um, is going to increase uh, the level of dissatisfaction. Yeah. I've heard that too, and I, I like that you say that because I think as a generation, millennials kind of get the um, short change. But I, I've heard that too, and it makes a lot of sense that you want to have a purpose and you want to feel that you're accomplishing something and not just showing up and being another cog in the wheel. Right, right. The, the company that I uh, consult with in New Zealand is an outdoor postering company. And when, when uh, they brought me over for a week of, of um, work with them, uh, when they were in a major transition period. And there's an exercise that I do of uh, looking at positions, um, roles, and functions. And um, a position is like the job title. A role is what uh, someone is assigned to do. And when, when we talk in ergonomy about uh, functional approach, I look at the function as what the actual effect is, not what the intention is, not what the assigned role is, um, but what the actual effect is. And so I was meeting with the whole group of people in this company. Some of them are the guys who go out and, and glue up the posters on, on a wall. And so I asked each of them to describe their positions, roles, and functions. He said, my position is, is poster uh, hanger. Uh, my role is to get the posters up there. And I said, well, what's your, your function? What is the effect of that? And he said, well, I get the job done. But I said, but more broadly, uh, what if you didn't do that? Um, he said, well, uh, the company would lose business. I said, that's right. And if the company lost more business, he said, I guess the company would fail. And I said, what would be the effect of that? He said, I'd be out of a job and 50 other people would be out of a job. And he sort of stopped and said, oh, my God, I had no idea I was that important. <laughs> Just helping people see the function they have in the bigger picture of a company is part of what I think can bring satisfaction. But that just doesn't happen enough. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of an example and tell me, did you ever see um, either the TV show Suits or, or Mad Men? I saw Mad Men. Yeah, I, I've never seen Suits. Yes. It's funny. I don't know if uh, what it says, but there's uh, like a beautiful redhead who's, I think, like the administrative um, yeah. executive assistant of some kind. Um, but, you know, in some senses, she's a secretary, but you can tell from watching that show that she has a much larger function in the entire company. Yes. Does that? Yes, very good. Yeah, that's exactly what, what I uh, help people look at is, so your, your role might be 
your title might be secretary, your role might be answering phones and and uh, organizing schedules. But um, as so often happens in companies, the, there is often a secretary who has a much, much deeper and broader and more important function, which is really being either the eyes and ears of, of uh, the executive uh, that she works for or the one who um, is in touch with, I mean, often that kind of person is the office that uh, workers go to to complain or whatever. And so often, and it's often a woman, um, uh, often she is the one who knows exactly what's going on in the company and can help the, the uh, president of the company see uh, how to deal with things. So yes, that's, that's a great example of the difference between a role and a function. I love word roots and, and position just means the point that somebody is. Role literally comes from a rolled up piece of paper that was given to an actor assigning them the character they were to play. Uh, <laughs> that's where the word role wow. comes. It's, it's the assignment, yeah, you're made. And function has, has a very broad deep root that goes way back that actually means to discharge something, uh, to enjoy. So it, it, it even has roots that if you're functioning well, it has something to do with things happening naturally. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I don't think most people think of, of function with, with those word roots and when, with those, uh, yeah, wow. Yep. And um, so that makes sense. Okay, we talk about a functional approach, and that's what you yep. mean. Um, whether it means, uh, met, you know, in someone's individual life and in their emotional life, or with their discharge of work functions. Right. Um, right. Right. Um, so, um, in in looking um, at, at that question, when you say uh, a functional approach. One of the key things with ergonomy is the understanding that things in nature happen spontaneously. So that's what we're looking at is what is the actual spontaneous effect of this person or um, what they've they've done. And that's why I say it's not what somebody says, their intentions, but the actual effect that matters. And when I told that in one of my consulting uh, sessions with a, a company, <laughs> the guy had the the insight to say, God, if people applied that to politics, that would make a difference. <laughs> so these basic principles that apply in you know, work relationships, yes, uh, um, social ergonomy looks much more broadly at, at the whole question of what's going on uh, mm. politically. My sense is, is good politicians know that and, and use their intentions to, to hide <laughs> what they're actually trying to do. Yes, yes, will happen. Yeah, fortunately, and that's why when I'm talking with with people and you doing that exercise of positions, roles, and functions, I will say uh, you can um, define a position, you can define a role, but you can't define a function. You can only identify it by what actually happens. So you have to observe in order to see what the function is, and that function can either be positive for the organization or negative for the organization, positive for the relationship, or negative for the relationship. And in my work with couples, which is another area of, of social ergonomy, over and over I will, I will hear somebody say, yeah, but I didn't mean that, you know. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> 
<laughs> and, I, and I use the example of you walking along, you know, a brick falls on your head, and the guy says, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, to knock that off on your head. It still hurts. <laughs> now, what you do with what, if somebody did mean to do that, you need to deal with it differently than if they didn't. <laughs> so, yeah, wow. Let, let me give you one other example going from what a function can, uh, a natural function can be or a, or a negative effect. So um, in uh, the company that I, I work with, um, they had someone, um, the, the one I was talking about before with the sales force that, that had been turned around, someone had been out on leave and came back um, uh, after uh, a year of leave and they had sensed that her, uh, she was the one who uh, looked at her clients as, as um, her clients as possessions rather than mm -hmm. people that she had relationships with. And so she came back and the, the um, had a palpably negative attitude that, that just uh, spilled over into uh, the whole uh, team uh, to the point that nobody really wanted to to work with her. And um, in fact, she then went behind the back of one of the other uh, sales uh, women and started calling the clients she used to have that had been assigned to this new person. Oh, and so, wow. so there was a confrontation between them and she then accused the, um, the, the person who'd come back from leave accused uh, the other woman of bullying her, which is a, you know, a very significant uh, charge. And um, fairly quickly, uh, I was able to help the um, managing partners that I do the consulting with see this as a <clears throat> an example of what we call the emotional plague, where someone's intolerance to um, the the positive feelings uh, uh, she has to go and destroy um, the other person's just uh, productive work and so the this ended up being a, a very clear example of that whole process that uh, somebody who's dissatisfied um, with their work situation uh, can either have a neurotic reaction and suffer in, in misery with that dissatisfaction, or they can have what we would call an emotional plague reaction, where they try to tear down the other person who is uh, uh, being more uh, successful and uh, satisfied um, than, than they are. And this was an example of the, of the second. And from our knowledge in ergonomy, there are only two ways to treat that. One is to expose the destructive motives or to quarantine it. Like, and it, the reason it's called emotional plague is, is that um, uh, negative emotional, destructive emotional reaction can infect someone else to also be uh, destructive in, in the situation. So you have to use... Uh, um, a medical approach of quarantining that infection. And it's so timely right now with uh, what's been going on with the coronavirus of 
understanding in the emotional realm there there is the equivalent and we need to use medical it's it's not a moral um, uh, uh, slam at the person that they're an evil person it it's a true emotional medical condition that we can diagnose that this person instead of handling their own destructive impulses that come from uh, their character is acting them out in the social realm and so we need to recognize it, diagnose it accurately, and then um, quarantine it, or, as I said, expose the motive. So sometimes in this kind of situation, uh, getting the person to um, express or discharge whatever all that uh, negative, destructive impulse is, is the equivalent of lancing a boil and, and letting the pus out. Sometimes the person can can turn around then this case. It's too early to know for sure But my guess is probably will not and the only choice is to quarantine her and remove her from from the organization and the the managing partner who I consult with was insightful enough to say look um, I think the infection started before this woman. It was in the sales team beforehand, that cynical negative attitude about uh, the whole sales process. And he named a particular person he thought might have been carrying it, that they it had taken them three years to fire him. Uh, now within two weeks of this woman coming back, there was this, it, I believe it's the equivalent of an inflammatory reaction where she just, the whole organization flared up because it was healthy enough to say, we don't want this negative attitude. We need to get rid of her. Whereas before she had been working in that earlier sales team for several years and it had not seemed to be a problem. So, so again, that understanding of the biological equivalence uh, is part of what ergonomy and social ergonomy can bring to uh, looking at, at work-related problems. They, that inflammatory reaction is, I think, functionally absolutely equivalent to a biological inflammatory reaction of, of something that is uh, seen as no longer um, serving the function of the whole organization and the whole organism. That sounds invaluable to uh, employees and employers to, to yeah. have that kind of information. Yes, yeah, because the the um, consultant they had um, uh, was advising them, well, bring her back, maybe they can work it out. But um, it's, it's interesting in, in our work with disturbed relationships in social ergonomy, we, we want to turn that pair of excitant and percipient into an attractive connection so that contact is made. But if it's an emotional plague situation, you want to do the opposite, is remove it. So the consultant was advising, bring her back. And, and I told them, stick to your instincts that this woman is going to be destructive and there is no working that out. And, and the managing partner said to me, he said, I was wavering and uh, I'm glad you uh, I, I actually, in, in between the week uh, of consulting with him, I sent him an email advising him, don't uh, uh, try to uh, engage her. Uh, you need to keep a strict quarantine until you see what's going on uh, mm. legally with the situation. And he said, I was wavering. I'm glad you told me that because I know that's right. 
but that's another feature we know about um, that destructive tendency is it causes confusion and immobilization in the healthy people. Um, so when you find yourself confused and immobilized about what's going on, you need to immediately suspect you may be dealing with that kind of situation. So if you could just say again, just so that it's clear, what is an emotional plague reaction? Just because I, I think this is an entirely new term and I just want to be clear. Okay, yeah. Um, so and um, uh, if I can use a, a uh, simple um, example of um, someone who um, is unhappy uh, in their own love life, walks through the park um, and sees a young couple um, uh, kissing and, and showing obvious genuine affection for each other. A neurotic reaction would be for that person to go home and, and suffer with their own limitations. An emotional plague re reaction would be that person going to the uh, city council and and having them pass a law against public displays of infection uh, uh, public that's a great slip public displays of affection so, <laughs> so the, the problem is is um, in that situation as the person's intolerance to being stirred up by uh, something else that's exciting um, gets projected onto the environment. So their impulse is to someone suffering from an emotional plague reaction, instead of suffering inside themselves, will try to stop the source of excitement outside themselves. And as soon as they infect someone else to help perpetuate that, you know it's been it's infected someone else and it's an emotional plague reaction. But the basic, I mean, I think we, we've we all had that, that reaction. We just wake up on the wrong side of the bed feeling bad. We go in and other people are, are happy and, and having a good time at work and we want to just smash them. Well, that's the, that's the underlying basis of the emotional plague reaction. So someone who suffers with that impulse to want to smash them is a neurotic reaction. Someone who actually acts it out is, is an emotional plague reaction. Ah. Thank you. That that helps clarify things, and, and then it infects other people. Right. Um, right. And and the basis for that we understand is that unfortunately the majority of people are not fully satisfied in their love and their work lives, and so there's all this pent up energy that either you have to shut down neurotically or it gets acted out in an emotional plague reaction, and so, you know, in um, major cases of it, one person will infect another to, um, you know, it's what uh, happened in Nazi Germany, it's what happened in uh, communist Russia, um, where there's so a full-blown full epidemic of destructiveness. Everything from a, a kid in a playground to world wars, basically. Um, yes. Wow. Yeah. And that, that's part of why it's a difficult concept, is, is it covers such a range, but the underlying mechanism is that one of, I'm having a bad day, I go in, see people happy, and I want to smash them. Uh, now, if I get someone else to help me smash them, then I, I've infected that person. Mm. Wow.
but it, you know, it's it, it it is very common. I mean, if you really start listening to people, I mean, most work politics um, has an element of that. Uh, um, I, you know, have had a number of of my private patients who have been in academia and for whatever reason the academic environment is rife with it's called academic jealousy but it's it's that destructive tendency um my patient's sons just got appointed um to a new position in an academic uh, uh institution and he was up for tenure everybody gave him absolutely glowing reports except this one guy who clearly uh, could not tolerate the fact that this young guy was was the brilliant star that was doing things this other guy had tried to do in his younger days but was never able to do. That's a classic example. It's it's not just um, any longer um, academic jealousy. He then goes to the um, uh, the tenure committee to say why he should this guy shouldn't be given tenure. Oh wow, wow, yeah. I think I think most people have do see that you know in um, in their lives and movies and uh, media. I, I think um, it's something we've all seen and known, but we we're putting a um, a better understanding to it. It sounds like it. Right. That's right. I mean, people instinctively understand it. I mean, J.K. Rowling understood it clearly in in the Harry Potter books. I mean, uh, Harry Potter's parents were were killed by Voldemort, who um, could not tolerate his parents uh, having the love they did and the love they did for Harry. I mean, it's right there uh, yeah. described in in almost the same terms we use without using the same words that, that we do. Well, this is wonderful. This is a lot of um, great insights. And um, before we stop, are there anything anything else that you think is important for the listener to hear? Um, I just hope the listener will will look into more what uh, the question of um, what is ergonomy and learn about it. And beyond that, uh, what is social ergonomy? Because um, we, we didn't even, I mean, it's such an explosive area. There's knowledge about social ergonomy that helps us understand the character basis of what's going on politically, too. And, and that's too much to try to get into now, but it's a whole field. Uh, I, I see social ergonomy basically having three major areas. One is working with families and couples. The other is working in work. Uh, relationships, work organizations. The other is about sociopolitics, and the mm -hmm. college is is addressing all three of those areas. Yeah. Wow. Well. Well. Thank you very much for your time. Yep. Thank you. I always enjoy speaking with Dr. Christ, and this interview is no different. I learned quite a bit. Did you learn anything? Have any thoughts or feelings come up for you after listening to this interview? I'll tell you a thought I have. This interview was done in March. I'm sitting here in July, amazed at how much has changed so quickly. I'm wondering, how can we spread this knowledge to help society deal with the current socio-political situation? How can we help people look at themselves and their situations, including their social environment, 
functionally. We are interested in your questions and comments. You can connect with us at adifferentkindofpsychiatry.com or orgonomy.org. If you like our work, be sure to leave a favorable rating, review, and share with a friend. The best way to help the ACO spread its knowledge is by letting others know about us. Find more episodes at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. One year down and many more to come. We will continue to release a new episode every month. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Thank you for listening to In Contact with the ACO. Since 1968, the psychiatrists affiliated with the American College of Orgonomy have been helping patients discover greater satisfaction, health, and overall well-being in their lives. Whether patients suffer with mental illness, struggle with addiction, or feel unsatisfied with their work lives or relationships, medical organ therapy as practiced by the physicians at the ACO offers a way forward, often without the use of medication. <laughs>